The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I and all sentient beings, until we achieve enlightenment, go for refuge to Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. By the virtues I possess, by giving and other perfections, may I become a Buddha for the benefit of all. Thank you so much for inviting me tonight. You have a beautiful facility. And all of your efforts in making a, a long-term meditation practice available to people in this area is, is just simply marvelous. Uh, the Buddha talked about the different levels of generosity. The first being just uh, the giving of money. And said that was the least uh, aspect of generosity. And so you've gone beyond, you've gone through the four levels of generosity. And just even the first one you did was so extraordinary. Uh, so there is so much merit uh, in your practice. We're going to do something a little bit different today. You know, when, when the Buddha was invited out to, uh, uh, to, to discourse, I mean, there was no topic. Uh, there was no order of service. So when he came, uh, he spoke as he was moved by uh, the hearts and the minds of the people that were, that were present. And so that's kind of how, um, how I do it. I know it, it perturbs some, but I told, I, was that Gil that was here tonight? Yes. Yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> Everybody knows me, and I just, uh, I have a short memory, so I'm sorry. And so uh, I told Gil, don't worry about it. I just left the, the black robe wearing Zen folk, and you know how, like, straight line they are. And, uh, and that worked out okay. So I'm, I'm confident uh, right here tonight that, that we'll be able to do something in a little different way, but it will, uh, it will definitely uh, benefit you. And so we're going to do the meditation at the end uh, so that when we go into meditation, we're going for a particular reason, and we hope to accomplish something specific uh, in that practice. You know, it's not, it, it's not just our relaxation. You know, we're not doing this to... Uh, to let go for a while, and, and, uh, but, but we are accomplishing something specific, and it takes the arousal of energy to do that, and it takes uh, the, a right effort to do that. And so tonight I wanted to talk some about that uh, because you're, you're coming up against a, a, a great obstacle. First we step off to do something, then after we, we get into it, you know, we have to take it to completion. So there are going to be many obstacles uh, and uh, that will come your way in the fulfillment of your dream. Uh, so I want to make sure that you have a firm foundation in your meditation practice so that it, it accomplishes, uh, it, uh, it gets the results. You know, uh, uh, there was a, a great teacher that said, what king goes to war without first counting up the cost? And so we know when we go into something that it's going to take something to come out the other end uh, successful. And our practice for doing that is through meditation. So meditation, you know, has a purpose in, a, in arousing wisdom, and it has a purpose in producing the power to bring into manifestation the, the, uh, the things in the phenomenal world that uh, should come into being through the hearts and minds of uh, the, uh, those who have a Bodhi mind or the enlightened mind. 
And so I want to talk about using meditation and going into meditation in, uh, in, this kind of, in this kind of way. And this is really a departure from uh, what I've been doing uh, since I've, I've come here to the West Coast. But I, I feel impressed to, to uh, do it this way tonight. Uh, so if you if you bear with me, when I'm I'm giving a 30 minute talk, you know I used to be a Pentecostal uh, preacher, and you know, do you know where my glasses are? You, um, am I my uh, did I leave one too? I think I did. Oh no, I didn't. They're right here. Uh, and so I was a Pentecostal preacher. So if it was all night, it was all right. Uh, but they already told me that at nine o'clock people will be walking out. So <laughs> so. So I'm going to get, uh, get right to this so that I hope I, I leave you with something uh, that's, uh, that's going to bene- benefit you. And this is on the mindfulness of breathing. I mean, this is like just taking it right to the first level of where we start uh, in our meditation practice. And I want to share with you something from the uh, Vasudhi Maga. That's the path of purification. It is a manual that, that we use um, uh, as monastics uh, to really uh, penetrate the, um, uh, the instructions for how to get the most out of the meditation practice is like probably like too much information uh, for you, more than you want uh, when you have to deal with the daily vicissitudes of life and you have 10,000 other things to do. We're supposed to be sitting at the root of a tree, so we have plenty of time to get into this. But I'm going to give you a short version tonight because I think that uh, the Buddha said he taught with an open hand, meaning that he held nothing back. Um, it didn't matter to him whether it was male or female monastics, male or female lay followers. He gave all without discrimination. And so I feel somewhat um, saddened uh, today that uh, so much of the information that uh, is available is not uh, disseminated in the, in the lay community. So whenever I have an opportunity to talk, I, I like to share some things on a little deeper level, and I think it will uh, uh, enhance your, your practice. It said mindfulness of breathing. Now comes the description of the development of mindfulness of breathing as a meditation object. It has been recommended by the Blessed One thus. And bhikkhus, this concentration through mindfulness of breathing, when developed and practiced much, is both peaceful and sublime. It is an unadulterated, blissful abiding, and it banishes at once and stills evil, unprofitable thoughts as soon as they arise. So now if we're talking about the mindfulness of breathing, and it says that when you really have it right, it stills and banishes unprofitable thoughts as soon as they arise. And it said there's something that is required, an enlightenment factor. What is it? It's effort. What is effort? The body and the mind of one who is energetic becomes wieldy. This is effort. What is the task? Imperfections come to be abandoned in one who is energetic, and his applied thoughts are stilled. This is the task. What is the effect? Fetters come to be abandoned in one who is energetic, and his inherent tendencies come to be done away with. This is the effect. So now there is a task, and there is an effect. The task uh, is that the thoughts should be stilled. The effect is that our fetters and our habitual tendencies uh, cease. That's the effect. 
And so when we look, and we've been practicing for 10 years and 15 years and 20 years, and we're wondering if we still have uh, uh, reached any level of attainment, he said, you don't have to wonder, you can just go by this. You know, so the question is, are your thoughts still? Do you have control over your thoughts? Can you steal them right in the moment, right in the very act of the arising of an unwholesome state of mind? Can you put that away? If you can't, he says, then you should know exactly where you are and you have not perfected, cannot come to the completeness of the preliminary practice of mindfulness of breathing. You know, that's the first thing we start with is breathing. Before we get into all these other things, you know, before we start studying jhana, before we start studying Vipassana, all of that, right there, mindfulness of breathing. So I'm going to take us all the way back to that starting point. You know, a building, you know, can only, uh, you can build it very tall, but how stable it is depends on its foundation. And so that's why I want to go back to a foundational uh, teaching tonight, and then we can go ahead and put our other stories back on, on top of it. It says, uh, when effort, what is the effort again? Mm. (laughs) It says, effort is when the body and mind have become energetic. Energetic, arousing energy. And this is the main point I want to bring about. You know, we are not sleeping in meditation. We're not like just drifting away into a relaxation. Actually, we're moving into a a hyper state of, of awareness. Even though externally there is a stilling of the body, internally there is a sharpening of the uh the mental acuity and the vision so that uh, we can move in and penetrate our ignorance. And so that is the object, that is the primary um, aspect of meditation. We're not meditating if we're not doing that. We're, doing, we're resting and we're doing something, but we're not meditating. Okay? But he says, what is the effect of this? And this is the, this is the purpose for that. The effect is to abandon the fetters and the habitual and inherent tendencies, these become done away, done away with. And how is this done? If we arouse the energy and we, and we follow the technique that, he, that was uh, laid out for us, it's like um, advancing into a stream. You know, if we stay on the side, our feet get stuck in the mud. You know, but if we advance and move on into the middle of the stream, there there's the current, and the current takes you on downstream. This is how your meditation should be for you. There should not be a struggle as we just step right off and wade towards the, the, the uh, middle of the stream. Then the current will pick us up, and it will take us where we're trying to go. Then, uh, then meditation becomes so enjoyable, five Hours is like five minutes, and it is accompanied by, by uh, uh, not only great insight, but it's accompanied by great, uh, great joy and bliss. So he says, uh, although any meditation subject, no matter what, is successful only in one who is mindful and fully aware, he said there's something a little bit different about the mindfulness of breathing. Because in anything else we focus on, it becomes clearer and clearer, more profound, larger, 
uh, more concrete. But he said in mindfulness of breathing, it becomes sub- more and more subtle. That means that the breath um, becomes finer and finer and finer until it appears to almost cease completely. And he says it appears to cease uh, due to our ignorance uh, of its composition, yet it appears that way. So there is a, a settling down the more we enter into the focus on the breath until it becomes more and more and more and more subtle. Said the mindfulness of breathing is difficult, difficult to develop, a field in which only the minds of Buddhist Pachika Buddhas and the Buddhist sons of Arhants are at home with. It is no trivial matter, nor can it be cultivated by trivial persons. You know, in, 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 in America, we just came right here and bang, we started with this meditation thing. But meditation was way down the road uh, in the Buddha's gradual training. He didn't start with meditation. He started with the cultivation of generosity and said when he saw that that had been uh, duly cultivated in them, then he went on to teach this and he taught this and he taught this and taught this. And way down the road, then he got to the meditation. But when it came over here, that was what was so different, what was so profound for us. And we jumped right in to the meditation. And in this process, we maybe had not quite laid the foundation that we needed to lay. And that's why, you know, what, what got me uh, really excited about uh, uh, taking up the, the, the Buddha Dharma and its practices was I read the Sutta that said, uh, they asked the Buddha, how long would this take, you know, this enlightenment thing you talk about? He said, well, you know, if you really follow uh, my instruction, you know, you can, you can accomplish it in seven years. He said, actually, you could accomplish it in seven months. He said, really, it only take you seven days. I said, this is the one for me, because I, <laughs> I already spent 30 years on another tradition, and my time is getting short. And so, uh, and so that's why I took it on. Uh, <clears throat> but I, I actually, you know, the reason I became a monastic, you can tell I'm just not like, like uh, your ordinary uh, uh, view of of a monastic, but I became a monastic because I wanted to have access to all of the teaching, and I wanted to concentrate and focus on that so that I could really penetrate it, so that I could bring it out, and I could share it with the world with an open hand. So this is what I do. Sometimes I get these emails from other monastics saying, Paniwadi, you shouldn't be talking about all that with them. I'm like, who is them? The Buddha made no distinction among his family. We're all sons and daughters of the, of the Buddha, so everything should be open and available. Sometimes things are not open and available, so it looks like we're so smart. But it's not that. Or like we have such supernatural gifts, but it's not like that. We have instructions in the book. Like uh, we, we learn how to even watch how a person moves, watch their movement, how to listen to their, uh, their conversation, how to watch how they walk, how to watch even how they sweep. And in this, we can determine what type of... Uh, um, um, a personality they have or what their temperament is, whether it's of a hating temperament, of a greedy temperament, of a delusional temperament, of a speculative temperament. I mean, see, these are things that, that we learn. So it's not that, that you know, we like just have this, this, uh, this, this great uh, um, um, a Dharma eye that is opened and this supernatural unfoldment. You know, it's, it's just uh, going into the depth of the teaching. And working with that and until we 
learn the cues and learn the signs. But not just the signs, but also the cures. That's the good part about it. And so uh, he goes on to talk to us about uh, uh, mindfulness of breathing as this meditation subject. And he gives us a simile so we can understand. You know, he, he taught, uh, you know, Jesus taught in, in parables. Uh, and in one place it says so that seeing they might not see and hearing they might not understand. But that didn't make sense. He taught them in that way just so that they could understand to make it so plain. And so the Buddha, uh, like all masters, uses teaching like this. So he gives us a simile of the star, and he says that just as your eye is, uh, uh, a sawyer's eye is fixed right there on the blade where the blade meets the wood, and even though the blade runs to and fro, his eye never leaves that one spot where the blade is connected with the wood. Even so, when we're doing mindfulness of breathing, our breath is concentrated and our focus in that same way. So we're not breathing in and we're running the whole breath and breathing out and taking it down into our lungs and, and you know, all of these things that I've heard is that we pick one spot. I don't care where you pick it, in the nose, out of the nose, at the, at the lip, anywhere, but you just pick one spot and you stay. And as you take that inhalation, it's like that breath running over that one spot and your eye never leaves that one spot. And as you're exhaling, just as the breath is running over that one spot, your uh, concentration never leaves that one spot. And he says, and in this way, concentration is established. Okay. So he's telling us how to tranquilize the whole body just from focusing at this one, at this one spot. And he says, and then uh, when we do that, he says, uh, there is something that occurs. In this way, a sign appears to the meditator. It's not the same for all. Uh, some say that when it appears, it does so in certain people by producing a light touch like cotton uh, or, or silk cotton. So you sort of have a, a, a sensation, a feeling of something coming over you. It says, but it appears to some like a star or like a cluster of gems or a cluster of pearls. To others, it's like a rough touch, like that of silk cotton seeds or a peg made of hardwood. To others, like a long uh, braid strain or a wreath of flowers or a puff of smoke. Says so to others, it's like a, 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 move, a movement, a moving of stars, like being on a train and looking out a window and you see what's in front of you in motion. For others, it's like a film of clouds or a lotus flower or a chariot wheel or the moon's disk or the sun's disk. And this is called the sign. So there is something that occurs uh, in our view, what view? In the vastness of the emptiness behind the closed eyelids. And that comes about, that sign, by the concentration and focus of the in-breath and the out-breath just at one point. Oh, this is the technique. This is the technique. And he says that when we fix our mind Upon the sign, then, eyelids closed, concentrating on the breath. A sign appears just in the vastness of the emptiness behind the closed eyelids. It says, and with it comes something. 
the breathing is tranquilized. Our vision opens. And as our vision opens, there is a, a, an arising of pity, of joy, and great bliss. This is what we should be experiencing, what is available to experience in our meditation. And this is preliminary practice. This is before we even get going, you know. This is preliminary practice. And then there's places to go way beyond that, you know. And so, but I wanted to stop right there because he says as soon as the sign appears, the hindrances are suppressed. The defilements subsided and subdued. The mind is established in mindfulness and consciousness is concentrated in access concentration. Now, I'm going to stop right there. Access concentration. That means we haven't even got where there is to go yet. This access means you're approaching something. You know, and from there it takes us uh, in to the various experiences we have known as jhana, and the Buddha's always talking about direct experience, and this gets to be something there's no point in even talking about. You either experience it or you don't, and you believe that there's somewhere to go or there isn't. And so, so I wanted to talk about these kinds of things because it's just as we go about our uh, de- developing and establishing our, our businesses and, and everything, our life in this phenomenal world. When we come in here, it is not uh, just a, 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 a laying everything aside and relaxing, but it's in here that we move from being ordinary human beings he talked about, you know, he's always talking about mundane, ordinary people. And then he was talking about uh, the superior beings. So those of us who are, are, are consider ourselves practitioners of the Buddha Dharma should have in mind, should be thoroughly convinced that we can move beyond uh, ordinary, mundane uh, views, ordinary worldly views. Otherwise, no need to pick this up. Just stay with whatever you had before. You know, and what I had before was pretty good. It was working good for me. I just didn't understand how it worked. You know, I said, you know, um, I was one of those, those off-the-chart kind of Christians, you know, so, so I was Pentecostal and then charismatic and, and strange things would happen. You know, I mean, and if I told somebody, some people would say, oh, well, I don't believe that. I was like, I don't care because it's happening to me, and I know that it's, I know that it's happening. But I didn't always understand, like, like, like but how is this happening? How, how is this working? Uh, what's this voice I hear in my head saying, get in the car and drive down the street, stop, go knock on that door. Somebody's sick, tell them thus and so. Or what is, you know, what is this guidance that I'm getting? Where is this guidance coming from? No, I didn't understand it. When I'd ask, uh, you know, my uh, uh, spiritual teachers of that tradition, they were telling me about a gift. I was saying, well, if, if God is giving gifts, he ain't giving it to me because I'm not that good. You know, uh, and, and, and I was wondering why is it that something could happen uh, 
for me, and there was another person who's more worthy of it or more deserving of it, and they didn't get it. You know, so something, you know, just didn't seem fair. Something didn't seem balanced. So I knew that there was some information that I was missing, and anybody I asked in my tr- tradition, I mean, they just didn't have an answer for it. It just became, you know, it's the gift of God or something like that, and I needed a little bit more information. You know, so I just went and talked to God directly about it. I said, you know, God, if I understood what you were doing, you know, I could cooperate with you more. So you got to give me some kind of sign. You got to give me, you know, I need, I need to know uh, just by what means all of this is working. This, and, uh, and, you know, in, in over a 15-year spin out, you know, I encountered the Buddha Dharma. When I first saw it, somebody made a mistake and gave me a Tibetan book. And you know those Tibetan pictures. It was the Wheel of Life. It had this, this animal with teeth. And, it, you know, and it had all that. And I said, I don't want any of that heathen devil worship stuff. And, uh, and I put it aside. So for 15 years... You know, I rolled around, uh, we call it the dark night of the soul, but I rolled around in confusion because I was afraid of anything that was uh, beyond, you know, just my little mundane understanding and uh, anything that was outside of the, the box of the spiritual tradition I was in. If I couldn't find it in their book, it didn't exist. Even if it was happening to me, if I couldn't find it in the book, it didn't exist. That's what some would even tell me. Oh, that's not happening. Like, you don't know because it's not happening to you. And so, and so here I am, 15 years down the road, and I encounter the Buddha Dharma. And I start to, to study this, and it, and it starts to articulate everything that's happening and how it's happening, by what means it's happening. You know, they were called the analyzers, you know. They could, like, analyze everything down to the nth. That's why it was the two this, the ten that, the eight this, the sixteen that. The, 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 I mean, you know, he broke it, broke it, broke it, broke it down. And for those of us who are, like, artsy and, and, and maybe were woo-woo, I was really woo-woo when I started this, but I'm a scientist now, you know. Uh, but, but, but. I'm not, a, I'm not a, a human scientist. I'm not an earthly scientist. I don't verify the Dharma by science. I verify science by the Dharma because I have apprehended something in the Dharma that supersedes that. You know, we can't rely that much on science. I mean, science is good. What we discover, we discover, right? But we're always discovering something that, that nullifies what we discovered before. Like, you know, when we were talking about the earth being flat. Now we know that it's not. You know, and so, so we have to take our science. It's wonderful when, you know, it helps uh, us to understand or develop more confidence in the Dharma. But don't let the science determine for us what parts of the Dharma is true. He said that this is a, uh, this is a, uh, a uh, Dharma that is uh, difficult to understand. He said it is sublime and it, is, uh, and it goes beyond our human intellect, and that this is available to us. And for what purpose is it available? To be a light in the world. You know, in the Vajagata Sutta, Vajagata asked the Buddha, he says, anybody get enlightened besides you in your camp? He said, oh, yeah. I, you know, I have, I have hundreds of bhikkhus who attain. I have hundreds of bhikkhunis who attain. I have hundreds of lay men who attain. Hundreds of lay women who attain. When was the last time you heard of somebody getting enlightened in, in Buddha land? You know, so, so we have to wonder, have we lowered the bar? 
What is actually attainable? What is this that we have turned our attention to and our hearts to and our minds to? And, and what is it that we can do more purely uh, that will have the effect that has been uh, promised? That's the, that is the uh, basis of our faith. Now, I know we don't like to hear that word faith. We all came out of something, and uh, we had about as much faith as, as we wanted. And so, so, you know, teachers a little, um, we don't talk that much about faith, but I tell you, he said, this is a dharma that you can have faith in. He says, how do you have faith? He said, it's not by blind faith, but by taking what I have shared with you. He says, and putting it into the cauldron of your experience. He said, by trying it. And seeing if it does not bear itself out. He says, and the more you try, the more things bear themselves out, the more confidence you develop in the Dharma. He said, but this is the good thing about it. He said, it's not my experience, it's your experience. That's why I say to you, be a lamp unto your own feet and a light unto your own path. And bear this out, check it out inside for yourself. He says, and in this way, we find that the Buddha nature is resident in every one of us. Also, I'm excited about this path. I've only been on this path for 10 years. You know, I missed my seven-year mark. But, and we're not even going to talk about the seven-month mark. But the one thing I do know is that the advancement is steady and the advancement is sure, and we don't have to be afraid to uh, include all of the passages and all of the instructions, thinking, oh, that's too much for people to believe, you know, but what we attain, what we know for ourselves uh, is, is sure and is real and is true. In fact, our feet run swiftly towards it. So I thought, are you keeping time, track of time for me? It's, it's uh, 35 minutes. Oh, my goodness. I think I was only supposed to talk for 25 minutes. Is that right? Well. Don't be scared. Tell me if I went over, just say so. You went a little over. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, so uh, as you can tell, you know, I, I really practice in meditation at arousing uh, energy and putting forth the effort. And um, I want to know if there were any questions. I love to take time for questions. And this is if there's any personal questions about your practice, any personal questions about the Dharma, questions about anything. You know, uh, I invite you to just speak up right now, and I'd like to uh, uh, try to uh, address those. Yes, ma'am. So glad you're here today. Um, and my question has to do with um, um, resources or guidance for phenomena. It seems like you're touching that when you speak of signs. It's um, and the unordinary experience. I find um, security in the ordinary. <laughs> And when things are quite un, just there's no explanation or anything, 
I get nervous. <laughs> so, you know, I, I um, have had the experience of hearing an omnipresent voice. And that's just a little too much for me to really feel comfortable with. So it can actually limit my comfort zone with even meditating. So thankfully, finding this practice does feel very grounding. But I would love for you to speak more because I think that's a topic that I really don't hear other people talk about. Because they're scared. <laughs> just like me. I'm, no, like, I'm, just I'm, playing. I'm just playing. Okay, thank you so much for your question. You know, what um, seems ordinary to one uh, may not seem ordinary to another. You know, so we have our own uh, sphere of, of experiences. And uh, so uh, while it may seem unordinary to you or just unbelievable to another person, it can be very ordinary, you know, to uh, to another person. That's their world. That's that's where they that's where they live. Um, but this is what I want to say about that. Uh, what makes us nervous is when we don't when our f- understanding is not full about something. We don't have a fullness of understanding. That's what. Uh, uh, creates fear for that creates fear for us but when there is clarity of understanding and fear is abandoned then there is no sense of of nervous then we become comforted in the wisdom that in the wisdom that we have and this is a gradual thing this is a gradual training sometimes you know we haven't had that much teaching uh in the west on um rebirth linkage you know because that's another topic that uh Generally, teachers don't want don't don't really want to get into with Westerners. But if you look at the East and what so uh, aroused uh, the the interest and the desire of those of us who went to the East and tried to bring back their teaching uh, was the. Um, uh, the, the, it seemed like a, just a deep understanding and a deep tranquility that the people that the people had, and that's because of the total teaching that they got. You know, so there was something in them that let them. Uh, they weren't so much interested in uh, individual attainment in this one life, but they felt. Uh, from a very deep space within, an, an interconnectedness, uh, a, a unification with, uh, with others. And so there was more of an uh, organic movement of the whole. There was a, a, a deep compassion and exchanging self for others that we, don't, we have to work at in this country. We have to work at developing it because our culture uh, brings us up in a different way. You know, so although we have, you know, an abundance of money, we have great uh, 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 technological advancement, you know, highly intelligent people, yet we're the most neurotic people, you know, we're the most unhappy people, we're the uh, most insecure people, we're, you know, we're the scaredest people. We, you know, uh, and so we know that fundamentally, uh, something is missing on a very deep level. So we tried to figure out what that was. And so well, they sit there and they meditate. You know, but it's not just meditation. The Buddha taught the Eightfold Path, and that was just one aspect of that path, and it was down at the bottom. You know? So he talks about uh, right understanding. You know, and there's a whole teaching he gives on right understanding to lay the groundwork for, for the way we think, to help uh, point us in a way of looking at, 
at the phenomenal, the phenomenal world, you know. He said that if uh, there is the born, there is the unborn. What does that mean? You know, so he's telling us that no matter what we can grasp phenomenally with our senses, there is something beyond that. And if we start saying, well, that makes us so uncomfortable, then we stay with our senses. And he said, you stay with your senses, then you stay with what the senses give us. What we get through our eyes, through the ear gate, you know, through our nose, a sense of smell, through taste, the tongue, through our um, Uh, hearing through our mind, which is our thoughts. And so we start a practice of just noting the thoughts and noting the thoughts and noting the thoughts, noting the thoughts and noting the thoughts, you know. But he said there is somewhere to go that we can put all of that away and we can move to another level. This this was the invitation. So many times when someone came and they asked the Buddha or something, he said, oh, there's a whole lot of teachers that will tell you about that. Go ask them. You know, because he, he was moving beyond that point for those who wanted to go deep. It does take courage. You know, it does take uh, an, uh, an openness and uh, uh, a curiosity, a, a belief just like he had. You know, he studied with the greatest teachers of his day. You know, and, and when he had reached the levels that they talked about, uh, they said, that's it. He said, no. I believe there must be more. And he said, no, it's no more, that's it. <laughs> and he said, there must be more. I, I believe there must be more than that. And he left, and he'd go to another teacher. And finally, he said there was nobody else that, he could, teach, that could teach him, yet he felt there was more. And he sat until he attained himself, and that's how he became a Samasam Buddha. That means that nobody taught him. And so those of us who have to rely on somebody pointing away, because I never got up one day and said, I believe there must be more. It was only because I, I read something or I encountered something or, you know, I had some experience that I, I couldn't uh, make sense out of or that I went and I asked the teacher. Even, even kids ask us profound questions. I mean, when they're six or seven and after we tell them, shut up, so many times, you know, they stop asking those questions. When the kids are going around, we call it with their imaginary playmates, you know, but we know that's not so. We know. Even when our dog is seeing something in the room and we can't see it, you know, well, now science tells us because you have such a narrow bandwidth for seeing you human beings, but the dog has a broad one, you know. And so he recognizes something's in the room, but your seeing is not fruitful. So he says if we stick to just what we can um, understand through our senses, we will remain earthbound and we will remain ordinary and we cannot effect uh, a positive change in the world. We're living in a time where we're looking for answers. We want to make change. We want to bring peace. And it seems so elusive. Why is it? Because we have been uh, come complacent with the mundane, complacent with the ordinary, and think that we can pull it out of the wisdom, the human ordinary wisdom that we have never been able to pull it out of yet. And so he gives us this invitation to wade out into the center of the stream. He even called us stream enterers. And the first level of stream entry, and he talked about it. And one of the three characteristics was um, uh, understanding of anatta, not self, you know. 
And so most of us who are not even ready to talk about not-self have not even entered the first level of awakening in the, the Buddha's dispensation. So I just say this to give you some encouragement that it's somewhere to go. It's more than getting a beautiful center and coming in and sitting for 45 minutes at a time and getting a little settled so I can uh, handle the fact that, you know, my 401K is gone or so that I can, uh, or, you know, or that my, my children are acting up, you know, and I feel like killing them, but I know we're supposed to be, do our hymns so we're not harmlessness, so I come and sit here and I learn how, how not to hurt them. Or so, you know, so I, I don't have to put five locks on my door. Or so that I, you know, you know when I'm talking with my friends and, and I know that I'm supposed to speak of whatever is, is beneficial or fruitful of a good report, but when they start gossiping, I just can't stop. You know, I mean, they It's for more than that. And that's what I wanted to encourage you tonight, to seek out the more than that. And with uh, abhya, which is fearlessness. And in the meditation I'm going to take you into uh, tonight, I'm hoping you have an opportunity to um, rest right at the bottom at the foundation of your house. And then we establish it and pour the concrete uh, and that you can build upon it as you move forward from this night. And I think we can take one more question, can we? Well, it's, it's about, we have about 45 minutes left. Okay. So maybe you could um, a- answer questions after the meditation. Would that be a possibility? Yes. Do we need to stretch? Do we need to stand? If we do, please, go right on. You know, the Buddha said all, me- all meditation doesn't have to be done sitting. He said you should know which one is for you. Did you know that? He said for some it's sitting, for some it's standing, for some it's walking, for some it's lying down. He said the one that inures to uh, tranquility for you, the one that allows you to uh, develop a concentrated mind, mind that posture is the one that you should be in. So tonight I give you permission to sit, to stand, to lay down, or to walk back and forth. In the Buddha's day, when the Sangha got together, they got together and they would share experiences. They would discourse on things. And different ones would group together according to what they were interested in. So some followed Sariputta and some followed Ananda and some you know, followed Moggallana uh, because they had different experiences in the Dharma and different skill, skill sets in the Dharma. He said it was called the, uh, being in the company of good friends. And he said that um, good friends were the whole of spiritual life. Ananda said, you know, it's good that we have friendship. It's half of the spiritual life. And the Buddha said, oh, don't say that, Ananda. Don't say that. It's not half 
of the spiritual life. It's the whole of spiritual life. So when they came together, they didn't come together to meditate. They came together to fellowship and discuss the Dhamma and the experience. And then they went out individually and they meditated. We got it kind of turned around here. But that's okay. This is, this is working for us. But uh, I just wanted to let you know that. <laughs> Breathing in, I experience the in-breath. Breathing out, I experience the out-breath. Breathing in, I investigate the breath. Breathing out, I investigate the breath. As a sawyer fixes his gaze at the point of contact between the wood and the blade, so I establish one point in which I investigate the in-breath and the out-breath. It 
maybe at the tip of the nose. Maybe at the tip of the upper lip. It could be inside the nostrils, but I establish one point and fix my attention there, breathing in naturally, breathing out naturally. Investigating the breath, does it feel warm or cool when I inhale? Is it warm or cool when I exhale? Is the breath smooth or is it rugged? Is the breath long or is it short? Is the in-breath and the out-breath continuous or is there a break between the inhalation and the exhalation? In this way, I investigate the breath, mindfulness of breathing. Is the in-breath and the out-breath of the same length and duration? Or is the in-breath short and the out-breath long? Is the breath getting more and more subtle? Is it getting more refined?
continually note all these characteristics of the in-breath and the out-breath. Like training a puppy to the paper, if the mind wanders off, just gently bring it back to observation of the characteristics of your in-breath and the out-breath. Is the breath slowing? Breathing in and breathing out, directing all attention simply to the breath. Is the breath rhythmic or is it ragged? Is it like a staccato? Or is it smooth? deepening our awareness and penetration of the characteristics of the in-breath and the out-breath.
noting when the rhythm changes. Noting how the body becomes tranquilized through concentration on the breath. Noticing the accompanying lightness behind the closed eyelids. Experiencing the sensations of peace, contentment.
continually investigating, keeping energy aroused and focused on the in-breath and the out-breath. Relaxing any tenseness that has developed in the body. If there's a pain, just move and go back to focus on the breath. Experiencing the steadiness that comes with the unification of mind and the breath. And a confidence. Noting it as the body becomes tranquilized.
feelings of happiness and contentment spontaneously arise. A mental equilibrium, a mental stability, And we train the mind to coordinate with the in-breath and out-breath so that at any time, at any moment, we can attain this state of mind. The sign is the bliss, it is the happiness, it is the feeling of joy. So we shift our awareness to that feeling and we just hold it.
The eight worldly winds, praise and blame, loss and gain, fame and shame, pleasure and pain. These are the things that take away our joy, that constrict us, that take away our vision. The Buddha said, finding our inner peace and inner happiness, something that the world didn't give us and the world can't take away is our starting point. Meditating on the breath, learning to really concentrate and keep our mind right there with us, said opens us up into a new dimension of stability and happiness, groundedness and peace. And from there, we can move on to self.